Amen. At the end of every life, there are three questions that summarize the success or the failure of that life. They are these. What did I do? Where am I going when I die? And what did I leave behind? The first has to do with duty. What did I accomplish during my life? The second with destiny. Where am I going after I die? And third with legacy. What will my life accomplish after I'm gone? And tonight's Bible study really does deal with primarily the third question of those three. And that is, of course, what will my life accomplish after I'm gone? Or what is it that I'll leave behind? Now, it seems like every time we start a new book of the Bible, we come again to this topic or this concept of transition or succession. When we moved from Deuteronomy to Joshua, we saw the succession or the mantle of leadership that was passed on from Moses to Joshua. When we went from Joshua to Judges, we saw that mantle go from Joshua to the people, to a theocracy, to self-rule, if you would. When we went from Judges to Samuel, we saw that mantle of leadership pass from self-rule to the kingdom. Samuel set up the kingdom and Saul became Israel's first king. When we went from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, we saw the transition or the succession from Saul, Israel's first king, to David, perhaps Israel's greatest king. And when we made the transition from 2 Samuel to 1 Kings, we had the succession of leadership transfer from David then to his son Solomon. And so follows tonight. As we pass from 1 Kings into 2 Kings, we again, we see not one, but two successions or transitions. One is positive and one is negative. The negative is the evil King Ahab passes the baton of leadership to his son, Ahaziah. And the positive is the prophet Elijah, whose mantle will be passed now to the prophet who will replace him, and that is Elisha. So Ahab to Ahaziah and Elijah to Elisha, as we see again, the transition or the succession of leadership passed from one generation to another. Now, no one really likes to think too much about succession, and that is because it reminds us of our mortality, that we're not going to last forever, of our finiteness, that our life is going to have an ending point, and the reality of yielding the future into the hands of others. And it's not a comfortable thing for us to think about, our legacy or what we will leave behind after we go. But it's a reality that we all someday will face. And what we'll see in tonight's study as we look at succession, both in the positive and in the negative sense, is that the key to successful succession is not once what we do once we get to that point of passing the baton, but rather it's what we did along the way. Or what are we doing along the way that makes all the difference? And thus we transition tonight into 2 Kings. Now there's two great themes of this book. Remember that in the original language, this wasn't two books, it was one book. First and 2 Kings was just Kings. But in the Septuagint and then in the English translations that followed, it was divided into two. So it's really one narrative that goes from 1 Kings all the way through. But there's a great break here between first and second, and there's two great themes. The first 
is the transition from Elijah to Elisha. The first 11 chapters will primarily center around this man, Elisha. And I love the lessons, the insights, and the truth that come to us through the ministry and the miracles that Elisha brought to the nation. I have personally benefited greatly from the lessons that are tucked into the things that Elisha did while he was in that place and on this earth. Very practical lessons. But the greater theme of 2 Kings really is the decline of a nation. And that is specifically a nation of God's people. Now, we kind of saw that in the book of Judges. The book of Judges was a book of ups and downs, but there was a general trend upwards as Israel was working its way towards its pinnacle under David and Solomon. And then it reached that pinnacle as David was set up and then Solomon that came later. Second Kings is different in this respect, is that it's, again, a series of ups and downs, but with a general uh, down in its flavor as we see the people of God moving continually further away from God to a point where God is going to step in, intervene, and they will be removed from their land even as Moses prophesied before they even came into it. That if they would turn from God, they would find themselves carried away from the land. So it, uh, it, it ends in chapter 17 for the 10 northern tribes carried away to Assyria. And then at the end of the book, Judah also is carried away to Babylon in the end. There's a chart on that page that you have right there. The the historical theme of Israel's history, or timeline if you would, is a lot like a capital M. You can see that um, marked there on the thing. Their rise was under the leadership of Joshua in the period of Judges. And then the apex of Israel's existence was under David and Solomon. But then after them, there was a period called the pre-captivity kingdom. It's a section of scripture that we're studying right now. And it was just a general decline. And you'll see that, uh, that, that, that slide downwards towards the pit. And it ended with the captivity. Seventy years where they were carried off to Assyria and Babylon, where they were slaves literally under the oppressive hand of uh, those kingdoms. But then, according to God's promise, they would return to the land again under Nehemiah and Ezra and Joshua the high priest. They would come back into the land and there would be a great revival and they would be thrust right back up into the apex, one of the highlights of Israel's history. Read of it in the book of Nehemiah. But then after that, four or 500 years, that's called the post-captivity era or the silent years, where again, there was just a steady decline and a cooling towards the things of God leading up to the book, or I'm sorry, the birth of Jesus Christ. But there's probably never been a more fitting book to study in light of the current time that we find ourselves in than the book of 2 Kings because of the decline of the nation. We also find ourselves witnessing before our very eyes the decline of a nation that was once hot and on fire for God. And so what we get from 2 Kings is, first of all, strength and wisdom for the faithful. In some areas... Lessons of what to do, what is right and good, but in other areas, what not to do and how to pray against the coming apostasy that we see happening before our eyes. We see great warning concerning God's intervention when his patience is exhausted, and we see the outcomes of mistakes made through their years. So tonight we study chapter 1, 
In the first 15 verses of chapter 2, we see the destiny of Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, in chapter 1. And we see the transition from Elijah to Elisha in the first part there of chapter 2. And so we begin um, in chapter 1, verse 1, looking at the life here now of this Ahaziah. Before you look at verse 1, just look backwards with your eyes to the end of chapter 1. 22 in verse 51 as we were introduced to this character Ahaziah. It says that Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel, that is the 10 northern tribes, in Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord And he walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, that would be Jezebel, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. And there's the break as you see the, the introduction of this man, Ahaziah, and now it tells us about some of the things that he did in his life. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper room that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and he said unto them, Go inquire of Baalzebub the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this disease. The first portion of this study as we look at this man, Ezariah, points to us concerning the failure of succession that took place in the ungodly line of this wicked king Ahab and his son Ahaziah. And I see three great things that really we can point and pin to Ahab that resulted in the apostate and failed reign of his son, Ahaziah. The very first thing that we notice about this failure in the first verse there is that he failed to prepare his son for future battles. It says that Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now, the Moabites had been tributaries or taxed by Israel since the days of King David. They had been servants to the Israelites. They kind of shared a border. They were across the Dead Sea on the, uh, you know, that, that western, eastern rather, border of Israel. And they were servants to the king and the people of Israel. But it was typical that when a throne would change hands, when there would be succession in leadership, the kingdoms that would be tributaries to a nation would challenge the strength and the authority of the new king, to see if he would have the strength and the stamina to keep them under that service. And so it would be the job of a new king to reestablish those strongholds and make sure that those people stayed in that place. Well, here we see the Moabites throwing off the yoke of Ahab's taxation and finding success in it. Moab rebelled against it. The resolve and the strength of Ahaziah was not up to par with what was necessary for his rule, his reign. Now, in our lives, as we consider this for ourselves and we think about our own spiritual uh, condition, there are areas of our life, sins from our past or tendencies that we have towards wicked things or carnal things, that, that we 
bring under the Spirit's control when we come to know Jesus Christ. Now, you know in your own life those things in those areas of your life that are a struggle for you, but by God's grace and the power of Christ in you, you've put those things under, and they are, in a sense, tributaries. They're brought into obedience or subjection to the Spirit of God within your life. The Apostle Paul would put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 9, verse 27. He would say that I keep my body under and I bring it into obedience, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be disapproved. He said there's areas of my life that I just have to keep under. They're a constant nag. They're constantly pulling at me. They're constantly rebelling against the law of the spirit that is in me that keeps those things down. And I have to maintain a hold over them so that they don't grab a hold and control over me. I keep those things under, Paul would say. But if you've been a believer for any length of time, then you understand that from time to time, those things that we keep under by the Spirit's control will raise their head and seek to rebel against the Spirit's hold over them in our lives. They'll try to come back and rule over us again. And so it takes some wisdom and it takes a little bit of resolve to keep those things under and not let our flesh get the best of us uh, because of it. It might be for you a desire for alcohol. Once it was a stronghold, and now it's just a nagging voice that from time to time screams at you and asks for indulgence, but by the Spirit's power in you, you keep it under. For some, it would be a tendency toward materialism and things. For others, it would be an indulgence. It's interesting to me that the Moabites scripturally were known for their promiscuity and their seduction, the sexual nature of their worship. That was how they messed with Israel in the days of Peor when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They seduced the children of Israel. And for some, that might be the very thing that you struggle with. It might be a Moabite-type mentality, a sensual sin that keeps cropping up its head within your life. And even though you're saved, sometimes the tendency towards those things seeks to pull us. And every now and again, uh, though those desires are subdued, they'll rebel and try to test our resolve. Now, as we live as Christians, we learn what our weakness is and what our enemies are. And in Christ, we gain control over them. And we must Because otherwise, those things will best us. They will knock us down and they'll take us out. They'll ruin our spiritual experience. But God, by his spirit, gives us power over those areas of our life. So in Christ, we have control over those things. But understand that your job is not done there, Christian. And here's why. Because for most of us, we have people that are watching us within our life. I have five of them myself. Five kids that are coming up in my household. And someday I'm going to pass the baton of spirituality. In a sense, I'm going to hand to them the keys of the kingdom that have been handed to me. And part of my responsibility in preparing them to come up as the next generation is to explain to them the battles that they also will face because I understand them as their dad. For Ahab, it would look like this to say, hey, son, the Moabites, they've been a thorn in Israel's side as long as we've been a nation, as long as we've been in existence. And understand that someday, son, someday when you least expect it, they're going to rise up against you. And this is the way that they come. And this is the strategy of their attack. But this is your strength and your resolve against them. And this is how you can stand guard and be ready for it. 
It never happened with Ahab and Ahaziah, and thus Moab rebelled, and Ahaziah was completely unprepared. Part of your job, mom and dad, in passing the spiritual baton onto your sons and daughters is to prepare them for the battles that they will face. Now, I know in my own life those areas and those things that seek to creep their ugly head back into my experience on a constant basis. And because I know me and I know them, it's my responsibility to prepare and equip them for it. Son, because of our family, because of who we are, because of where we live, or because of the society and the age that we live in, this enemy is going to crop its head up in your life. And you need to be prepared for it. You need to be ready for it. And this is how you do it. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. That the power of Christ in us is stronger and greater, and you can overcome the temptations and the strength of your flesh by the power of God's Holy Spirit, but you'll have to rely on Him. And it's our job, parents, to prepare our kids for the enemies that will one day seek to take from them what we invest in them spiritually. Ahab failed to do it. It's important for us that we don't. The second thing that Ahab failed to do in his son Ahaziah's life was to guard him against the crippling fall. Notice again with me in verse 2, it says that Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber, the upper bedroom that was in Samaria, and he was sick. So he falls through this lattice, and the result of it in some way is that a wound became infected, and he now has a disease that was a result of this fall. There's not very much that we learn about Ahab, his father, in our text, except for the fact that he was exceedingly wicked and that he built an ivory palace. We were told that at the end of the last chapter. He was known for that ivory palace. And for him, it was a trophy. It was a merit. It was something that he was proud of, that he had made this beautiful palace out of ivory. But what we weren't told is that in his bedroom, off the balcony, there was a barrier that was secured by something as weak as a lattice. You ever seen a lattice before? That's the thing that people use under their decks to keep raccoons out. And it didn't work very good. <laughs> but it's not very strong. A lattice certainly isn't known for its strength. But because perhaps he liked the way it looked or the artistic of the thing, or perhaps because the builders didn't do a thorough job as they had in Solomon's day, it was weak. And it was a weakness there. But it wasn't a problem for Ahab because Ahab knew about it. It was his palace. He constructed it. So though there was a vulnerability and there was the potential for a fall, Ahab knew how to deal with that vulnerability because it was his house and he knew that it was there. But what he failed to do was to warn his son that there was an area that if he got too close, that there was the potential for a fall. And because of that, we see that his son fell where Ahab didn't secure things properly. Now again, as parents, we must be ever so careful to remember that our actions translate into successive generations. There are vulnerabilities in our lives that we know about. There are dangers that we're aware of, and therefore we know how to protect ourselves. We live life, perhaps most of us here didn't birth into the kingdom. We weren't raised in Christian homes. For me, I got saved when I was 19 years old, and so I had 19 years of sinful life that I lived through, and then I got saved. And by God's grace, he beat back those things that were beginning to take over in me. 
And now those things, they're under the Spirit's control. And again, they're not a, a, an issue. They're not a, a, a drive. They're not something that's going to take me down. But that's because of the wisdom I have from living in the world and knowing what it is and what it does. And I know I'm not going to go back there. But here's the danger. Is that if I allow certain things in my life that maybe are in the category that we would call weight and not necessarily sin, or we would call them indulgences, but not necessarily excesses, if I allow those things within my life because I know I can go this far and no further, I might be safe and protected, but maybe not my kids. They might look at the things that I'm doing to a point or with control, and for them, they interpret that as that this is okay and it's safe, and therefore the thing that I know, oh, don't go any further than this, to them, they lean on that and it gives way and it turns out to be a fall within their life. And so for you, Christian mom and dad, it might be okay for you to have a beer or a glass of wine or a drink or two while you're out socializing. And for you, it's not an issue. It doesn't ever cross the barrier into drunkenness. It's not an area where you're given to temptation, where you can't control and you can't stop and you know bring things to where they're supposed to be. It's just something that you do. That might be the case for you. But what about your kids that are watching you? What's it going to do to them when they come to that age and they have that as their example? You might play cards, a friendly game of poker with your friends. You might gamble $10 in quarters as you just hang around with your friends and socialize and talk and play cards. And for you, it's not an issue. It's not a sin issue. But what about those that are watching you, that don't understand what could happen, the potential and what gambling does? For you to use a credit card, you have the wisdom, you understand. For you, it's airline miles, it's points, it's a convenient way to pay the bills, then pay it off every month. No interest, just done. But it's seen and never explained. The lattice is there, but it's not secured and fenced. And your kids see that, and for them it becomes an issue of covetousness. It becomes excess. It becomes $20,000 of debt on a credit card. See, what happens is sometimes we as parents, we can enjoy certain liberties because of the lattice that we know, I can't go any further than this. But then we assume to our peril that our kids will not go beyond the lattice that we have put up. But here's the fact and what I've observed, and you have too, is that our kids, those that follow us, will only rise as high as our lowest standard. Or to put it another way, your limit will be their starting point. If you go this far, that's where they will pick up and go off. Or another way to put it, that our fruit will be their seed. In other words, it might be the furthest you go, but it will be just the beginning for them. It's what happens. It's what happened to Ahaziah. For Ahab, it was a limit, but for Ahaziah, it was excess, and it cost him ultimately his life. He was crippled, then he was diseased, Now he's going to die. The third thing that Ahab utterly failed to do in passing the baton to his son Ahaziah is that he failed to teach Ahaziah where to turn. At the end of the verse, it says that he sent messengers and he said unto them, go and inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this disease. Ahaziah has a problem. He has a disease as a result of the injury, and he needs help, and he's seeking for answers. Am I going to live, 
Will I heal? Is this going to get better? And he inquires or sends messengers to Baalzebub. That is the Lord of the flies. That's what that means. Who was the God of Ekron in the city of the Philistines. Now his father, Ahab, never once sought God. Not once ever in his whole life. He rejected truth at every turn and wouldn't listen to the voice of prophecy or the voice of Elijah or the word of God. He had no place in his life for the counsel of God at all, Ahab. And now we see in his son's life, he's turning to flies for help. Someone who doesn't know where to turn for help will have a son who doesn't know where to turn for help. And he does just what he saw his father do, and that is nonsense, something that cannot help him. So parent, again, let me ask you a question. Where do you turn for help when you need it? What do your kids see you doing when you come into a place in your life where you have need? Do you turn to counselors or perhaps books? Maybe it's YouTube or Google, the fountain of all wise information. Perhaps you turn to money or alcohol or drugs to just take away the pain or to make it go away. Perhaps maybe you turn to prayer. Maybe they see you on your knees, opening your Bible, grabbing your spouse by the hand and saying, hey, we've got a need. There's an issue here. We've got to go to God because he's our ever-present help in trouble, and he's the one that can help us in this thing. Here's the issue is that our kids are going to follow the pattern that we leave for them. This morning we were sitting at the breakfast table, and my three-year-old son, Riley, who I believe, and I'm biased, so you don't have to believe this, But I believe that he is a little bit smart for his age in a good way. I mean, all kids are, you know, think they're a little smart. But he he just has this thinking, I don't know what it is about him, but he's a very, very smart little boy. And he was sitting there and he was eating his eggs or whatever it was and making a mess of himself. And he, he, he was pensive for a moment. And then he looked up and he said, Mommy, and I was sitting right there, so he addressed the question the wrong way. When you hear the question, you'll understand. He said, Mommy, do the back wheels of a car turn too? That was his question. And we were both like, where does he get this stuff? Like, what is going on in there? You know, I mean, he's three, you know, and these are the things that he's thinking about. Do the back wheels of a car turn too? And so Georgia looked at him and she goes, yes. They, They don't. They don't. And that was just kind of funny because I was like, no, they don't. And she was like, oh, they don't? And I was like, no, 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 they don't. The back wheels of the car don't turn. They they do what the front wheels do. They just, she was like, really? Wow. You know? And, they, you know, so, so then we got into this whole discussion about tires and wheels and differentials and all this kind of stuff and how all that works and everything. But, but here's the point in all that. Is that in the little mind of a three-year-old, he now knows that the wheels in the back, they don't turn. They do what the wheels in the front do. And that's true for you in this vehicle of life that you're traveling down this road of life, mom and dad, is that the wheels in the back of the car, as long as they're attached to your car, they don't turn. They go where the front wheels go. And if you have a tendency to go a certain way, your kids are going to go where you go. And that's exactly what happens with Ahab. He had no place for God in his life. And therefore, when his son had a need, he had no place for God in his. How important is it for us, mom and dad, that our kids see us go to God in our need, that they hear us in our prayer? Too many times, I think we try to keep it to ourselves. We go into our closet, and if our kids walk in, we stop praying or stop reading or something. What will it do or what will they think? No, let them hear you. Let them see you. Go to God and rely on God and trust in God. Now, at the end of the day, 
The reality is that our kids are souls. They're human beings, and they're going to do what they're going to do. They have a free will, and they're going to do what they want. They're going to make their own choices. But what we can do as parents is that we can prepare them for their future battles. We can warn them about the lattices of life, those areas of weakness that they are going to face and that they need to watch out for. And we, need, we can show them where to turn. Psalm 46, verse 1, that he is an ever-present help in trouble. And so we see Ahaziah fall because Ahab failed. Now what's the outcome? Verse 3. It says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Sarcastic, linguistic way of him asking and saying, Hey, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to ask Baalzebub? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, You shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. And Elijah departed. I love this guy. He comes on the scene, he delivers the message, and then he disappears. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, why are you now turned back? So the messengers, they immediately go home and they approach the bed of Ahaziah and he's amazed that they're returned so quickly. He knows there's no way that they could have gotten all the way to Ekron and back by now. And so they said unto him, there came a man up to meet us. And he said unto us, go, turn again unto the king that sent you and say unto him, thus saith the Lord, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you send to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. And now he condemns himself. Watch this. And he said unto them, what manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him that he was a hairy man. And he was girt with a girdle or a belt of leather about his loins or his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. The most self-condemning words that Ahaziah could have said. Because what this reveals is that he knew exactly who Elijah was. He knew exactly who the God of Israel was. He knew what God had done in his nation in the generation previously. And yet here he testifies with his own mouth that he's rejected the help, the counsel, the leadership, and the ways of God Almighty, and that he was set to go his own way no matter what. He had heard about the fire of God that had fallen in his father's day, and now he's going to see fire fall in his own day. Watch this. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50. So a commander of 50 men is now sent to apprehend Elijah to arrest him. And he went up to him and behold, he sat on top of a hill. Elijah liked that. We've seen him do this. This is the third hill we've seen Elijah sit on, probably Mount Carmel. And he spoke unto him, thou man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, also, he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. 
And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Now, this is amazing to me. First of all, why is Elijah responding this way? And second of all, why is God heeding the prayer of Elijah? I mean, how many times have we wanted to do this? <laughs> right? I mean, you, you know, your boss comes to you or that person that is just antagonistic towards your faith at work and they come to you and they say, hey, man of God, hey, Christian, hey, Bible thumper, hey, born againer. If I be a born againer, then let fire fall down out of heaven and consume you and everything you have, you know. And nothing would happen, you know, and we'd be like, oh, come on, Lord. You said Elijah prayed and you answered him. What's going on? Listen. In Ahab's day, the fire of God fell from heaven, according to the word of Elijah, and it fell upon the altar and it consumed the sacrifice. That was God's warning and God's scapegoat for a nation that would turn to him. But when the nation didn't turn to him, and now one generation later, we see the servants of Ahaziah walking in the same rebellion of generations past. The fire of God this time doesn't fall upon an altar, upon a sacrifice. It falls upon the people that rejected the counsel of God. And that's exactly what happens in the life of any person that rejects the grace of God and the call of God to repentance. See, the fire of God, the judgment of God fell upon his son Jesus upon a cross 2,000 years ago. The Bible says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all and the full weight of God's wrath and judgment was placed upon his son Jesus on that cross on that day. And God has given many generations the opportunity to heed that message, put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and to be made right with God in turning from their sins. But for those that refuse that and continue to mock and scoff and reject the plea of God, for them, the fire of God will fall again. This time, not upon a cross, an altar that was prepared. But this time, it will fall upon their own heads, and it will be their own fault. See, this isn't the harshness of God in judging these people. This is the promise of God of what he will do to those that reject. Because God has paid for every sin that man has ever committed. And he calls anyone to freely come and receive grace and forgiveness. You can be saved at no cost to you in terms of you providing atonement for your sins. But if you reject that cost, then you will bear the weight of every one of your sins and someday the fire of God will fall on you in a way that you do not want. It's a sobering realization and here we see the fire falling upon those that reject. Verse 13. It says, and he sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. So a total different spirit in the third messenger. And he besought him and he said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and he went down with him unto the king. 
So here we see now, and then it says, and then he said unto him, thus saith the Lord, for as much as you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, is it not because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down off that bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. The third messenger comes, and this time God sends Elijah to Ahab. He says, hey, I respond to humility. Go with this man now, and you deliver the message to Ahaziah personally that he's not going to recover from this thing. But what I want you to see in this is, do you notice the difference in Elijah? He's a different man than he was several years earlier when Jezebel sent messengers to kill him. Do you remember that story? It was right after the fire of God fell. And he thought for sure now the nation will turn back to God. And no sooner does he get a message from Jezebel that she's going to take his life, that she wants him dead. And Elijah runs 300 miles and he weeps before God like a scared chicken. And he says, God, take my life. It's enough. I'm not greater than my father's, but please let me die at this point. And we see a weakness in Elijah at that time that at this time now no longer exists. He's different. He's a different man than he was those years previously. I think if Elijah were here and we were to ask him and say, hey, what gives? Why when Jezebel gave a threat, you fled? But when it came from Ahaziah, you stood confidently and fearlessly went with the messengers who greatly outnumbered you. And you so boldly faced Ahaziah and spoke so boldly to him. What gives, Elijah? And he would say, the strength that God gives us through our trials and tribulations is priceless. Had it not been for what Elijah learned on that mountain and the experience he had with God since that point, he might not have had the strength at this time. What's the point for you and I? Is that the trials that we face... The difficulties, the struggles, the distresses of life where we would even say, God, take my life. I don't even want to live anymore. Those things are essential in forming in us the character, the confidence of Christ to make us stand for what's coming in our future. God must have full access to every part of our life to make us what he wants us to be. And that means that we'll have to go through dark things, that those dark things might teach us that God is all things. That's what he does. And here we see a changed man in Elijah, very seasoned, very strong, very stable. What we also see um, here is we see him speaking a message now to Ahaziah because of his failure to seek the Lord. And he says to him boldly that you will not stand, but you will die. And then again, he departs. He gives the message faithfully, and then he leaves. And here's what happens, verse 17. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram reigned in his stead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Okay, now God just loves to see our confusion. Ready for it? The king of the northern tribes now is named Jehoram. And the king of the southern tribes is now named Jehoram. Okay? God's like, figure that one out, you know. But we will because the, 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 the mind of God teaches us all things, right? Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahaziah reigns for two years, a completely failed administration because he was so ill-equipped and prepared for it. And then he dies and passes off the scene. We come to chapter 2 and we see now the succession 
of Elijah to Elisha, the prophet that will come after. It says that it came to pass that when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. We're encountered right off the bat in this of the second of only two deathless departures in Scripture. There's only two men in the Old Testament that went to heaven without dying. The first was Enoch. We read of him in Genesis chapter 5. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. For 300 years after the birth of his son, he walked in close, intimate fellowship with God and God took him away. The only other is Elijah, and we see it here in this chapter. He was caught up in a whirlwind that he should not taste death. Now that's a privilege that God doesn't hand out too quickly, and it causes me to ask the question of why. God, why is it? Hebrews states that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. The waters of death is something that all men face. So God, why these two men that didn't face death in the Old Testament? For Enoch, I believe it's because he's a type or a picture of the rapture. He was taken out prior to the judgment of the flood that was coming. Noah, a picture of the Jew, was preserved through the tribulation or the judgment that came. Enoch was taken out before it. I could be wrong on that, on that being God's reasoning why he took Enoch. Elijah, I have no idea why God took Elijah out, except I can suggest to you perhaps that for Elijah, his ministry isn't over. Because the Bible says that before the second coming of Christ, he will send Elijah again to restore all things, to turn the hearts of the Jews back to God, and that for 42 months there will be two witnesses that prophesy in Jerusalem for 42 months, and that they have power to call fire down from heaven, which is a great pointer to this man Elijah. So it could very well be that God is putting the ministry of Elijah on pause, and at the end of that 42 months, that's when he'll taste death because it says that they will be killed at that time and their bodies will be left in the streets for three days and the world will celebrate and send presents to each other because these two prophets that tormented everybody are now gone. And then after three days, the life from God comes back, they resurrect, the world goes, (gasps) you know, and then they're caught up to heaven again the second time. Now you've gotten two Bible studies in one night. It's a deathless departure in Scripture. We're going to see Elijah taken up in a whirlwind. He's not going to taste death. And he knows that it's going to happen. Elisha knows it's going to happen. The young prophets that are raised up around them know that it's going to happen. It's a fairly well-known fact that this is going to happen on this day. In verse 2, it says that Elijah said unto Elisha, Wait here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Bethel. They go from Gilgal, and now they come to Bethel. I'll point out here that Elisha has been with Elijah for the past ten years. He's been serving with him. He's been gleaning from him. He's been watching the prophet's relationship with God and in turn cultivating his own. He's been seeing his ways and the way that he conducted himself among the people. He heard his teachings in the schools of the prophets. He had been with him for those 10 years being prepared and groomed for this day when the mantle of Elijah Elijah will fall upon him. It's interesting to me, as we talk about succession, that Elijah really does very little at the end of his life to equip Elisha. The equipping came along the way. 
It happened while they were going for those 10 years, and the fruit is in what he had done during that time. He says to stay here. Stay in Gilgal, Elisha, while I go. The Lord sent me uh, onward down to Bethel. And the response of Elisha is, no, no, no. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not separate from you. My eyes will be on you and my hand will be with you all the way until the end. The question is, why did Elijah want Elisha to stay up in Gilgal and not follow along with him? There's different suggestions. Most likely, the reason is that it's really a test. Hey, you know, Elisha, that I'm going to pass. Why don't you stay here and you become the head honcho of the school up here in Gilgal, the school of the prophets, and take over the ministry from here. This will be your home base, and you can begin to establish yourself now because I'm moving onward. He wanted to see, is Elisha all about himself? Is his main concern just the succession of what he's going to be now, the position that he'll obtain? Or is he about the people, and will he be faithful all the way to the end? I believe Elisha passes the test. He says, no, no, I'm going to be with you all the way, right through, all the way to the end of this thing. Well, verse 3, they come to Bethel, and it says that the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha, and they said unto him, knowest thou that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he said, yeah, I know it. Hold your peace. Be quiet. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, For the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and they said unto him, knowest thou that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he answered, yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave you. And they too went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and they stood to view afar off and they too stood by the Jordan. Now, according to biblical historians, the schools of the prophets, which were the Old Testament seminaries or Bible schools where young men would learn the scriptures and were trained up that those schools were in these three places, in Gilgal, in Bethel, and in Jericho, that that's where the schools were. They were most likely started by Samuel back in the days of the early kingdom, and then they would be upkept and sometimes neglected at certain times, depending if there were teachers. And it was the ministry of Elijah really to build them up, and then Elisha will really build them up throughout his ministry and raise up these young men. It's the Old Testament equivalent of the seminary. Now, in our day, we have Bible schools, we have seminaries, we have places where people can go to learn the Scriptures. And those are good things. It's, we want as much Bible teaching, Bible uh, you know, ex- explanation and education as is possible that a person can receive. But a Bible school or a seminary never makes a man of God. They can assist, they can educate, they can help, but only God can make someone a man of God. It's interesting that Elijah and Elisha didn't come through the school of the prophets. God raised them up. He taught them. There's no noteworthy prophet that comes out of the schools of the prophets throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They're there, but they're not really there. Dr. Tozer has this quote, and it's on your paper. You can read along with me if you want, but he said this. I like it. 
He said, Dr. A.B. Simpson founded Nyack College, Christian College. But Nyack College never produced an A.B. Simpson. D.L. Moody founded Moody Bible Institute. But Moody Bible Institute never produced a D.L. Moody. Both colleges produced a great many servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm getting at is simply this. Only God can prepare a prophet to do the ministry of a prophet. The schools of the prophet never produced an Elijah or an Elisha. Men and women of God are produced when surrendered individuals filled with the Spirit of God give themselves to the Word of God, follow God, and produce fruit in their lives with patience. God doesn't call the qualified, those that have been qualified through seminary education. He qualifies the called. And he can use education to you know, do whatever it does, but it certainly is not a necessity. We see it's a bonus, we see it's a plus, and we see it here uh, in the Old Testament. Why Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho, and then Jordan for Elijah? Why is he on this trek and going in this direction? I don't know exactly, but I'll suggest to you that he's traveling in the reverse order of the original places that Israel went upon entering the land with Joshua. Remember when they crossed the Jordan River and they went to Jericho and the walls fell down? They went from there to Ai, which was a sister city, to Bethel, and that's where they failed the first time. And then they went to Gilgal, where the covenant was established. They would shout back and forth from the two mountains, remember? And they erected the pillar of the law. It was the beginning of Israel's sojourn in the land of promise. Now we see Elijah traveling in the reverse direction as he goes from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then to Jordan. He's going to cross over Jordan. He's going to leave the land. Why is that? I believe because symbolically, though they were physically present in the land, they had spiritually checked out. And Elijah, who will be called the chariot of Israel and the horseman thereof, the father of Israel, is checking out as a testimony to them that they had turned their backs on God they had reaped the promises and the blessings, but they had turned their back on the person. And thus, Elijah goes that way. Verse 8. It says, And Elijah took his mantle, and he wrapped it together, and he smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. Now that's awesome, isn't it? How would you like to be able to do that? You know, hey, you come to a stream, you come to the Hudson River and you want to go across to the other side and you don't feel like taking a boat or the bridge. So you just take off your jacket and you smack the water and the things go back and forth. Now, Elijah seems unfazed. He's like, I knew that would happen. No big deal. But if you were Elisha, you'd be like, whoa, that's awesome. You know, this is cool. It's got to feel pretty good when you smack the water and you watch it divide. If nothing else, you've got to know that you are walking in the will of God. Doesn't it feel good when you know that you're walking in the will of God in your life? It's just as good as if you see the waters divide. To know that you're right where you're supposed to be in God's plan and progression for your walk on this earth, to know that you're right where you're supposed to be, there's a peace in that. There's a rejoicing in it that exceeds even the power to part waters, to know that you're in the will of God. Paul told the Ephesians that his prayer for them is that they would stand perfect in all the will of God that he would give them spiritual wisdom they would comprehend and understand the will of God for their lives. God's will for you is that you would be in his will. And if you would ask him, he'll bring you into that place of his perfect will. It says, it came to pass that when they were gone over, that Elijah said to Elisha, ask now, 
what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from thee, then it shall be so unto you. But if not, it shall not be so. If you see me, if your eyes are on me when I'm taken to heaven, then count that as granted. God's going to do it. But if you don't see me when that happens, then it won't happen. Now, at this point, you know Elisha is not leaving the side of Elijah. And it came to pass that as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha asks for a double portion. He says, this is what I want. If you could leave me one thing, if there's anything in your legacy that could benefit me in my future, it would be that I want a double portion of the spirit that's upon you. That the walk that you have with God, the voice that you hear from God, the authority that you have with God and from God, that I would have a double portion of that spirit within my life. That's a very interesting request. But even more interesting than that is the reply that Elijah gives. He says, you're asking a hard thing. Now, is it hard for God to give a double portion of the spirit that's on Elijah to Elisha? No. With God, he says, is anything too hard for me? I'm the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me. So it's certainly not hard on God's side of things. So wherein lies the difficulty then for Elisha to ask that he would have a double portion of the spirit that's on Elijah? I believe that Elijah understood that the depth of his experience and the spirit that was in him was a direct byproduct of the experiences and sufferings that he had along the way. He knew that the presence and power of God's spirit within him was because of the three and a half years that he sat by a brook and the time that he waited in a widow's house under the appearance of evil in the seasons of running like a chicken scared from Jezebel the long seasons of isolation and just waiting upon God, watching the decline of the nation, and yet seeing nothing change. The lessons that he learned in the crucible and in the fire of God, that all of those things were the, were, were the, the, the root of the spirit that was in him. It wasn't just a light switch. It wasn't that God just saw Elijah and goes, ah, I need some you. Boom! And here he is anointed and he's the prophet of Israel. And Elijah understood that if you want a double portion of what's in me, then you've got to understand that though it's freely given to you by God, it still comes at a cost. Because if God is going to use any life greatly, he must first wound that man deeply that he might know who it is that he's leaning on, relying on, and trusting in. And thus he says, you're asking a hard thing. There are many that want the anointing from God, but they don't like the price tag. And understand that it isn't a monetary thing. It isn't that God says, well, if you'll go through this, this, and this, then I'll give you this. That's not what it is. He gives his spirit freely. The Bible says it's yours for the asking. He gives the Holy Spirit to all those that ask. But understand that if you want to move in the anointing and in the power of God, that there is a price tag upon your life and that there is a crushing that comes with it. The anointing oil that they would use when they would put it on the priests or on the kings or on the prophets was made by crushing the bark of a particular balsam tree and they would extract a resin from it and then they would 
process that in a certain way and it would bring forth the aroma of the anointing oil that was to come. God said that oil is unique. There's not another scent like it in the world. The anointing, the oil of God that comes upon the life of a man or a woman of God comes with a great crushing. But there's an aroma that comes with it that is second to anything, even a distant second to anything else that the world can, uh, can provide. And anyone ever, whether it's Elisha or whether it's in the present day, anyone who occupies a place of greatness with God paid a high price in the secret place. The sign that God gives through Elijah to Elisha that he will receive the answer to his prayer is that if Elisha sees him when he departs, but he says, if not, then you didn't get it. Now, I find that interesting, and here's why. Because it tells me that Elisha didn't feel any different when he walks away with this anointing. He sees Elisha carried away, and thus his prayer is answered. But he doesn't feel any different. The sign isn't in how he feels. Oh, I had this incredible energy come over me and I was shaking and I couldn't get up and the power of God just came. None of that was there at all. It was something that God granted to him and it was to be received by faith because he saw what God said he would see if he was to receive it. He didn't feel a thing. The Bible says that on the day of Pentecost, God put the fire of God in cloven tongues upon the heads of those that were present in that upper room. Isn't it interesting that God placed the fire of his spirit in probably one of the only places on the body that you can't see yourself? Anyone here can see the top of their head? I mean, you could see almost anything. Some people can even see every part of their back, but no one can see the top of their head without a mirror. And that's where God chooses to place his spirit. See, he puts his spirit in our lives in a place where it can be perceived and enjoyed by others but where we can't get lifted up and say, hey, look at this great prize that I have, this power of God's spirit within my life. See, oftentimes it's not a feeling at all. It's something that we receive by faith. The New Testament says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in all things. How did you receive Christ? By faith. Most of us didn't feel any different the moment after we received Jesus. I didn't. I received Christ and nothing changed in the way I felt. Some people have these feelings and things happen and that's fine, but I didn't. I received Christ by faith. There was no feelings involved. See, the Spirit of God comes upon our life by asking. The promise is to you and to your children and your children's children and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He will give His Spirit to you if you ask Him for it. Now, the development of that anointing and how God then uses it through your life is dependent upon whether or not you'll surrender to him. Will you allow God now to lead you through the deep waters? Will you surrender absolutely and say, God, take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to you, that whatever you want to do with my life, Lord, it is yours completely. See, to that person, they're going to experience the moving and the leading of God's spirit in a greater way than someone else. It's available to everyone. But are you surrendering? Will you pay the price? He didn't feel any different. He prayed, he received, he walked, and then he grew. Well, now verse 12, the legacy of Elijah. It said, And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, can you imagine seeing the person you're walking with just raptured, taken to heaven right in front of you, fiery chariots and horsemen, and boom, he's just gone. He's carried away. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. 
And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he went back and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. Notice the response of Elisha when Elijah was taken, what he says. First of all, he says, my father. What is a father? Father is a source of strength, of provision, a symbol of stability and a good example. That's what Elijah was, not just to Elisha, but to the whole nation. He says the chariot of Israel. What does a chariot do? A chariot carries someone where it's going. And he says the nation rode you into positive progress. And not only were you the chariot that they rode upon, but you were also the horseman. You're the one that gave the direction and the leadership and the drive, the impetus behind those that are godly and living godly within this nation. That was the legacy that Elijah left behind. He was a father, a chariot, and a horseman, a leader, one who would carry the nation on his back. Now, that's interesting. There really was no great revival under Elijah. There was no magnificent sweep as there had been in the days of Solomon when the Shekinah glory fell upon the temple. Not like there will be later on in Nehemiah's day when the people repent and there's a great revival. It didn't happen under Elijah. There was no territorial expansion of Israel's border during his times. If anything, they shrunk because of the ungodly kings. He didn't reunite the kingdoms and bring the people back to God. None of those things happened that we would probably look at and say were positive. We see a man in Elijah who was faithful to God and to his glory. He walked in obedience. He was a good example of godliness. He taught God's truth to those that would listen. And he lived a holy life. And he became one of the greatest and most venerated characters in all of Scripture. Sometimes we fall under the false conviction and unless we turn the world upside down for Jesus in some way that we really didn't accomplish anything. That's not true. We see a man here who was faithful, who was stable, who was consistent. And God honored him in a place of high elevation. Verse 14. It says, and Elisha took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and he smote the waters. And he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were there to view Jericho or uh, at Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and they bowed themselves to the ground before him. In this verse, Elisha employs the power that God had promised in answer to his prayer, and he, in the sight of the onlookers, sees the waters again spread as he himself passes through again on dry ground. It's interesting to me that the power of God's Spirit in his life was manifested when he stepped out in faith in the sight of others. See, he didn't feel any different when he walked away from Elijah at that moment, even to the point where he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where are you, Lord, in all of this? It wasn't until he smote the waters as he had seen Elijah do that then the waters parted. Many people say, where's the power of God in my life? Listen, step out in obedience to God and you'll hear and experience the power of God in your life. He says, Listen, I've empowered you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So speak for God and watch the power of God convict hearts as your words pierce them like arrows. Employ, walk in faith, and God will do it. The power manifested in obedience. It's also interesting to me that Elisha's first miracle is identical to Elijah's last miracle. What does that mean? It means that Elisha picked up where Elijah left off. 
it should encourage us, shouldn't it, to prosper in spiritual things. He was a man filled with God now, and he was a man who can pick up where Elijah had left off. So what's the conclusion as we close uh, for, for tonight, our Bible study to pick up next week? We leave off with the antithesis of where we began. At the start of our study, we saw the fall of an ungodly king because of the ungodliness of his father. And we end our study with the spiritual advancement of a prophet because of the obedience of his spiritual father to the things of God. And here's the point, is that our lives as we walk with God have an effect upon this world, whether we like it or not. We will have an influence on what happens after we leave one way or the other. Ahab ignored truth, embraced paganism, lived for self and for pleasure, dishonored God at every turn. And the byproduct of that is that he produced a son who was even worse than himself. Elijah lived for truth. He renounced paganism. He lived in obedience and for God's honor and God's glory. And he produced a son in the faith that was even more productive and better than himself. So parent, the word of the Lord for you, for me, is this. Is that what you sow, you will also reap. If you live in rebellion to God or in apathy towards God, even if it's silent rebellion and you have the appearance of spirituality but your heart is far from God, then you're going to produce the same thing in your son and in your daughter because you can't fool the spirit. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will also reap. But if you live in obedience to God, even though that obedience is laden with struggle, your own struggle, your temptations, and your fight to fight the good fight of faith, then you will thrust your children forward in the things of God. God sees the invisible, and though man can be deceived at our false appearances, God cannot. Here's the greater conclusion, and the musicians can come is that the outcome of our lives doesn't hinge upon a few things that we do at the end, but rather it's in what we did all along the way. Are we preparing our children for the battles that they're going to face in their future? Are we taking our struggles and our experiences and our depth and our growth and investing in them in such a way as that they're prepared to face the battles that are coming for them in their future? Are we warning our kids concerning their weak spots and our weak spots that we know will someday be their weak spots so that they don't fall through the lattice of life? Are, they, are we letting them see us turn to God and seek His help and see His help within our lives? And are we encouraging them to live and to walk in the Spirit so that when we go one day and we pass over the waters of Jordan ourselves, whether by death or by rapture, our kids can look at us and say, Dad, Mom, if there's one thing that I would have from you, if there's one thing that I look at your life and I would say, that's what I want to be the mark on my life, then let it be that I have a double portion of the Spirit that's on you. Let me know God in an even greater and more intimate way than you do. I want the God of my father and of my mother. That, Christian, is a successful life. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this word. And once again, Lord, you hold before us examples, both good and bad, both high and low. And through it, Lord, we know that your spirit, you desire to teach us how to live. That your greatest desire for our life, Lord, is that we be fruitful and productive in spiritual things. And that not just what we do and where we go, but what we leave behind.
And so tonight, Lord, our prayer is this. Lord, fill us again with your spirit. Give us the steadfastness of an Elijah or an Elisha. Help us as parents to cultivate and bring it forward in the generation that's to come. Lord, that your name wouldn't be blotted out from the earth. And so use us, Lord, no matter what age we are or where we're at right here, right now. Lord, that you would have your way in us and through us. That this church would leave a mark on Dutchess County. That our families would leave a mark on future generations. The things that have plagued our line for years and decades past, Lord, would stop with us and that the direction and course of the future would be changed. And so we turn to you tonight. And we thank you, Lord, to the fire that fell on the cross of Calvary, that our sin was placed fully on your son, that we might experience your grace, your mercy, and forgiveness. So, Lord, as we go tonight, we would ask that you would renew and revive our heart, that you would give us a passion again for spiritual things, that you would convict us for our apathy and perhaps even spiritual laziness, and that you would light a fire in us, Lord, that we would see your kingdom and your coming that we would see the prize. Make us sensitive to our sons and our daughters. Teach us to lead them, Lord. And we pray your will would be done as your kingdom advances. For Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.